Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if you read a newspaper, you know that inflation is a dire and very important thing happening right now. A problem for the Biden administration and for economic policymakers and for regular people who want to buy milk. You don't really need to understand inflation, elite media seem to say, but you do need to be mad about it and direct blame for it toward yourself. John Schwartz writes about elite media's confusing and conflicting instructions around inflation, among other things, at The Intercept. We'll talk with him about the current economic reality and the storyline. Also on the show, ethically deficient radio host Alec Jones's defamation case is a political story about the impact of energetic, intentional disinformation. It's a media story about how profitability around hateful BS seems to change the terms about whether things that call themselves news outlets should be held accountable for demonstrably harmful lies. It's also a speech rights story about whether you can yell fire in a crowded theater and then say, ha ha, any dummy would know I was just kidding. We'll ask, how does the legal system solve a problem like Alex Jones with Enrique Armijo, professor of law at Elon University? That's coming up. We'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. A New York Times headline read, Inflation warning signs flash red, posing challenge for Washington. A subsequent Times piece underscored the problem and the solution. The White House says its plans will slow inflation. The big question is when. That framing is echoed and adumbrated everywhere in corporate media. Inflation is coming for your cup of coffee next, says CNN. Inflation's wrath hits home, was USA Today's rubric. And then, surprise, surprise, CNBC has, inflation has 88% of Americans worried. True, there's an admixture of, for example, the New York Times columnist Paul Krugman's history says don't panic about inflation, but anyone can see that judging by sheer focus and attention, Serious, smart people organize their thinking around inflation more than many another economic indicator. In the recent words of our guest, whenever the corporate media moves en masse like this, it's a good idea to slow down and consider what's actually happening and why. John Schwartz writes for TheIntercept.com. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, John Schwartz. Well, I'm so happy to be here, especially to talk about this in particular, because this is one issue where you realize that there is no one room where all the people get together and decide what it's going to be in the U.S. media. But it really does seem like there is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We we hear media complain about how we used to all talk around the water cooler and agree on everything. And we know that's not true. And yet you have to acknowledge the power of media and making it seem as though 
we're all in one conversation. So the phenomenon really here is corporate media alarm and the worldview that that reflects. But let me ask you first about what there there is there. What reality is it that these headlines are referring to? The reality is that inflation went up from last October to this past October by 6.2%, I believe it was, according to one measure that includes food and fuel. And so that tends to go to extremes more than the standard measure, which excludes them. But just to be fair, because food and fuel are important for people, a number to think about is legitimately 6.2%. So that's over a year. And it happened that inflation went up from September to October by 0.9%, meaning that if something costs $10 in September, it now costs $10.09. So is that the bare understanding? Because if I'm reading headlines, I'm reading about costs of things that I'm that I want to to buy going up in a way that's going to really affect my life. And it seems as though the increase in inflation is most meaningful in terms of how much it's going to affect the price of my coffee or how much it's going to affect something else that I as an individual are buying. But there's other things that inflation means that are really maybe more at work behind the alarm here. That's right. It's funny. The Washington Post had not one but two above-the-fold stories about inflation this week on one particular day, one talking about how terrible inflation was and one about how it was destroying Biden's agenda. And they also had a chart covering, I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years that by itself explained that their story was not what they were telling you. It was a chart showing real wages going down a little bit over the last year when inflation is taken into account, meaning that you know, inflation was 6.2% over the last year. Wages for regular people went up by 5.8%. So the purchasing power went down a bit. But the chart itself showed that people's purchasing power being eroded, going down in real terms when inflation was taken into account, had happened a lot over the past 10 years. And it wasn't a gigantic front page emergency story then. Like, what was the difference? And the difference was this, was that there were not high rates of inflation making that happen in the past during the Obama administration, I think even during a little bit of the Trump administration. The difference is that now it is happening with higher rates of inflation. And higher rates of inflation affect people with tons of money in a way that is never described in the corporate media. To my knowledge, I literally have never seen this. And the story there is that household debt in the United States is about $14.5 trillion. So that's a very big number. It's about 75% of the size of the entire U.S. economy. And when there is inflation, most of that debt is a fixed rate debt like mortgages, student loans, things like that. And the inflation erodes the value of that debt because it's set in nominal terms. Like it stays at $15.5 trillion no matter what level of inflation there is. Right. And so 6.2% inflation, that works out to a transfer of wealth from creditors to debtors of about $850 billion, so almost a trillion dollars. That is a lot of money. It doesn't work out precisely. Different people have different levels of debt. It's not totally transfer of $850 billion from the rich to the poor, but it is a significant amount. 
And you may have noticed people with a lot of money do not like to lose it. And that's really at the root of this inflation freakout. It's that plus the fact that there's a very tight labor market right now, meaning that there's low unemployment and workers have much more power than they generally do. And the standard treatment for an economy with high levels of inflation is to increase interest rates, load the economy, which throws people out of work. And that is the goal, you know, that they do not like a booming economy. They do not like low levels of inflation. Creditors in general do not. And what they would like to see is a slower economy with lower rates of inflation and higher rates of unemployment. So it's these two things, their goal to slow the economy, raise unemployment, and the eroding value of the debt that they hold. Well, you're talking about differential impacts, both of inflation and of proposed responses to inflation, and differentiating that impact is exactly what elite media don't generally do. They talk about us and them in a way that is meant to, you know, collapse other folks into the us that, you know, really don't belong there. And so... The New York Times' Neil Irwin has an explainer. That's a kind of piece where it's like, you don't need to know the details, just here's the nuts and bolts of this issue that you're hearing about. And it's called, Who's to Blame for Rising Prices? And this is all already collapsing inflation to rising prices in ways that are unnuanced, as you've just discussed. But still... In this, like, kind of let's make it simple, let's break it down, who's to blame for rising prices? One of the New York Times acceptable answers is all of us. <laughs> exactly. Right? You know, and the reason is we, I'm quoting, we shifted our spending towards stuff rather than services. That's one of the reasons. And then also, and many of us elected to stop working or work less. This is the New York Times, the paper of record, trying to talk to people, you know, and say prices are going up, here's why. And their reason is you messed up, you know, you messed up during the pandemic. You you started buying the wrong things and you made wrong choices about employment. I mean, we talk about this as an economic issue, but it's obviously a media, a corporate media issue as well. Yeah, it's, it's a class issue. It's, it's one of the issues where the class bias of the media really shows up in its most powerful form. It's absolutely unmistakable. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I just I, I, I don't know what I wanted you to say in response to that New York Times article, except, you know, that these kind of headlines and stories, they're not just lamentations. They're also calls for action. The, the, call, the call for action is to get back to work. Exactly. And, and, uh, and in terms of actions that are responses from various entities about dealing with this abstract-sounding inflation, well, some of those responses are going to also affect people in their day-to-day lives. So it's, it's meaningful to kind of unpack what media think or are telling us is the right thing to do here. Yeah, there is, you know, another class-based aspect of this that the media should be covering and is not. People have generally and rightfully said that you do have to take into account particularly elderly people who are living on a fixed income. But the reality that, again, many people don't actually understand this is that Social Security is not a fixed income benefit. Social Security is inflation adjusted. And so people who are anxious about being able to pay their bills Inflation 
mean that Social Security benefits will be raised by 6% almost in January. So that is going to be a welcome help for people in that situation. But again, not something that people are saying, hey, listen, don't panic because your benefits are going up. People don't hear that because that is not being covered for the most part. Well, just finally, looking forward in terms of what folks are going to be hearing, including about themselves, I just saw before we got on, I saw a Yahoo Money headline, Americans are feeling lousy about their finances, even though they're doing fine. I mean, I don't, I don't know, isn't that gaslighting? You know, just looking forward to the headlines we're going to be seeing about inflation, what are some questions you would have folks just keep in mind as they read and hear that media coverage? Yeah, so I mean, just, just keep in mind the class bias of the media, as they say, it is particularly apparent now. Uh, they do not tell both sides of the inflation story by any means. And also keep this in mind a year from now when they are going to have completely forgotten about this issue because inflation almost certainly will dissipate it and will be you know more like 2 or 3%. Absolutely. Well, we've been speaking with John Schwartz. You can find his work on TheIntercept.com. Thank you so much, John Schwartz, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Well, thank you very much for having me. An article by our next guest begins with the news that a Connecticut judge has found radio host Alex Jones liable in the defamation claim brought against him by parents of six- and seven-year-old children killed in the Sandy Hook massacre for falsely claiming they were accomplices in faking the murders of their own children, because that's the kind of sentence we get to hear in 2021. Alex Jones has urgently and repeatedly told millions of people that Hillary Clinton runs a child trafficking ring from the back of a pizza parlor, that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, and that tangy tangerine supplements made him lose 37 pounds in two months. The thing is, when Jones's ex-wife was suing him for custody of their children— because reportedly she didn't want them around someone who tells ardent followers he wants to break people's necks or have women sexually assaulted or lawyers' heads brought to him on a pike. Jones's defense was that he is just playing a character. Nobody is supposed to believe what he says. Asking Jones to account for things he says his lawyers assert is like judging Jack Nicholson by his depiction of the Joker in Batman. Well, Jones's most recent court loss is around those claims that the 2012 Connecticut shooting that killed 21st graders and six educators was a government plot to take away American guns and that grieving parents were paid actors in the scheme. It's that case, and what it leaves unresolved, that our guest is here to discuss. Enrique Armijo is a law professor at Elon University, as well as an affiliate fellow of the Yale Law School Information Society Project. He joins us now by phone from North Carolina. Welcome to Counterspin, Enrique Armijo. Thanks for having me, Jane. Well, this judgment from Connecticut, which is similar to previous ones around Jones's shtick around the Sandy Hook massacre, it was a default judgment. What does that mean and what doesn't that mean? Well, what it basically means is that the reason that Alex Jones has, in effect, for purposes of this trial, has been found to be liable 
is not because his legal arguments were considered on their merits and rejected, but rather that he just refused to defend himself against these state law claims brought against him in Connecticut and Texas by these Sandy Hook parents for uh, the, the claim is of defamation. So what that means is that the juries in these cases are now simply going to go on and decide damages, that is the degree to which Alex Jones's statements harmed the reputations and caused emotional distress for these families. What it doesn't mean, as I said, is that there have been conclusive rulings uh, at the state court level or really the United States Supreme Court level with respect to the First Amendment regarding some of the First Amendment issues that would have been at issue in this case had it been litigated on the merits. Yeah, it seems important that his actions are self-protective in a way, like by just not participating, he preserves his ability in the minds of some to say, I never had my day in court, you know, and at the same time to say, I refuse to participate in this corrupt system, which of course is going to be part of his rhetoric. But in your piece for the conversation that explores this, you talk about how this sort of defamation claim might have been seen differently by courts, even up to the 1950s. So so what's changed? Well, prior to the 1950s and prior really to the United States Supreme Court's kind of intervention into state law defamation claims, and, and state law defamation claims are basically allegations that a speaker has said something that's false and that negatively affects the reputation of the subject of that statement and which has caused the subject of the statement, damages that are compensable uh, in state court. And it would have been basically prior to the constitutionalization by the United States Supreme Court of these state law claims, plaintiffs like the Sandy Hook parents would have simply had to show that the statement was about them and that it caused them some harm and that there was some minor what's known in the law of defamation as degree of fault where basically uh, the statement was made by the speaker defendant without any kind of reasonable investigation or, or whether or not the statement was actually true. So what happened in a case that I talk about, a very famous case called New York Times versus Sullivan, is that the United States Supreme Court basically said because of the First Amendment, people should be freer to speak about public officials, including the possibility that some of the statements that they make about public officials might be false. So we had to protect these kinds of statements, even false statements, by saying that the plaintiffs in these cases, so in other words, public officials who thought they were defamed by other people's statements would have to show what's known as actual malice. So what that means is that the speaker has to have made the false statement either knowing that it was false or with reckless disregard as to whether or not it was true. So New York Times versus Sullivan was a case brought by a police commissioner. Uh, in Alabama against the New York Times. In later cases, as I kind of go through in some detail in the piece, this idea that it should be harder for public officials to show defamation because the First Amendment wants to encourage people to talk about public officials without risk of being held liable. That was kind of extended to not just public officials, and the case basically means um, elected officials or individuals in very high levels of government, but also what the Supreme Court called public figures. So these are folks that are not elected officials or not service in government, but they're otherwise 
notable in a way that the First Amendment should permit discussion about them. And the Supreme Court essentially applied the degree of fault of public officials from the Sullivan case to public figures in a series of cases. And public figures essentially, in many instances, are otherwise private people. So the idea that it would be harder to show defamation extended to private people who were for purposes of litigation, what's known as limited purpose public figures. Which is an odd sort of thing. It's like you came into the news, so at now you are a limited purpose public figure. And that's Gertz v. Welch that you're talking about. How did that change things in that way? Exactly. So in other words, if you were a person who had kind of inserted yourself into a controversy in the Gertz case, the Supreme Court said that it should be harder for you to show that someone else has defamed you because, again, there's a First Amendment interest in this talking about the controversy. And one of those justifications in saying that it should be harder for public figures to show defamation is, as you just said, that the public figure has the opportunity to protect their own reputation. So in other words, if I'm a public figure and I'm defamed and I want to rebut that defamation, people will listen to me, right? There'll be an audience for my self-help. And also – the fact that I – and I think this is the issue in the in the Jones case that I talk about – the fact that I voluntarily inserted myself into a controversy essentially means that I have assumed the risk of potential defamation when other people talk about that controversy, including my role in that controversy. Well, we can see why this is very much a live and and thorny issue. And there is the role of the Internet, which, as you indicate in the piece, has has changed defamation laws, as you're starting to talk about, has changed that idea that folks have a platform to speak back against the defamation. And yet, you know, we still have the law and harm is still done. So how does that bring us back to Alex Jones? When the legal issues in the case as brought by the parents were initially being litigated, and one issue to litigate initially is basically Alex Jones and other folks involved with InfoWars, their state of mind with respect to these statements that they were making about the parents. And what Alex Jones was arguing is that the parents essentially had to show that Alex Jones made the statements knowing that they were false because the parents had kind of injected themselves into this controversy about gun rights and that in one case they were advocating about stricter gun laws in the United States in the wake of the Sandy Hook shooting. And what I try to get at in the piece is that is a very dangerous argument for defendants in defamation cases to make because, as you said, the Internet has really changed the distinction between public and private, and one of the things that it's done with respect to defamation law is to make it much easier that someone is a public figure, right? So in other words, if you put something on the internet, if you make an argument on the internet, and then someone defames you, the person that defames you is going to basically say that you've inserted yourself in the controversy. Now I can say anything about you and not be sued for it unless you can show that I knew it was false. And obviously, state of mind is hard to prove, right? So, and as you said, you know, at the beginning, the kind of Alex Jones and these types of folks kind of modus operandi is to say, 
I'm just raising questions. Yeah. You know, I don't know what's true or false. You know, to to use the quintessential yeah. Donald Trump term, people are saying this. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it, but people are saying it. So once you get into this very rigorous requirement that you have to basically show that someone knew the defamatory statement was false or acted with what's known as reckless disregard as to whether or not it was true. By making it easier to argue folks are public figures, you've also made it much more difficult for people who claim that they're still private people to successfully sue for defamation. Well, and I just want to end on that note that it's being presented and can be presented as just media mouthiness, and we can't lose sight of the fact that there are people impacted here. And in the piece, you say that one of the impacts, one of the effects of making individuals prove actual malice against someone like Jones would encourage families, for example, to take the tragedies that happen to them and swallow them silently. So once again, when we talk about the First Amendment, when we talk about speech, we often talk about the speaker. um, And we have to also keep in mind... um, chilling effect and the effect on other people when they are not allowed to hear things because people are scared to say them. And that's really kind of the fear that I really express in the piece with respect to this issue is that I don't think I I certainly wouldn't want and I, and I don't think any fair-minded person would want a parent who has suffered this kind of tragedy to basically be thinking about preserving their right to sue someone for defamation later if they decided that one of the things they wanted to do with that grief was to try to make sure the incident didn't happen again. I think what would happen if you know if, if the Alex Jones side of this argument would win. So these parents, rather than speaking out and trying to prevent other school shootings, they would think, well, I want to remain private. I want to protect my own reputation. And there's a real First Amendment loss to that because we, we, we don't get to hear from people who really have the most important things to say about these tragic events and how to potentially prevent them in the future. We've been speaking with Enrique Armijo, professor of law at Elon University. His article, Alex Jones Loses Sandy Hook Case, But Important Defamation Issues Remain Unresolved, can be found at theconversation.com. Enrique Armijo, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.